Good morning, church family. I hope that you're doing well on this beautiful August Sunday morning. It's, it's really, in some ways, hard to believe that we're already in August. So we were talking about in our, our staff meeting earlier this week that it, it kind of feels like in 2020 we're stuck in this weird middle ground, third dimension, time warp, right, where it feels like um, you know, this year will never end in, in one sense. It feels like we've been in 2020 for about five years. And then on the other hand, we're really just kind of uh, working through this year very, very quickly. It's, it's hard to believe that we're already in the month of August, um, but, I, but I hope that you're doing well. It's good to be with you as always. Uh, if you happen to be new um, or visiting with us, just want to extend a, a special warm welcome to you. My name is Chris, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at New Life. If you've, if you've got a Bible, let me encourage you to go ahead and grab that, open it up to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, little letter in your New Testament, and we're going to be drilling down together today in verses uh, 1 through 6. Uh, we are beginning to kind of round the corner. We are hitting the home stretch in this series called Hope in Exile uh, through this amazing little book, which was originally actually a, a letter uh, written from the Apostle Peter to a group of uh, churches in Asia Minor, which was in the Roman Empire, and these, these churches full of uh, believers were suffering in, in a big way. And they were just absolutely marginalized for their faith in Jesus. They were being mocked by their, their family, by society, by their neighbors, by their co-workers, and eventually they were actually persecuted physically. Many of them uh, would eventually give their, their lives um, in following uh, Jesus Christ. And so Peter is writing this letter in that context, right? So we, we kind of think our, our situation and context is bad. Now we got nothing on what believers in Asia Minor were going through 2,000 years ago. They were actually uh, suffering and being opposed in every way imaginable. And Peter is writing this letter ultimately to give them hope, to give them hope right in the middle of their suffering, <laughs> Right, right, right in the midst as they, they walk through these painful experiences in life, which is really, if you think about it, it's kind of the opposite of what our culture conditions us to believe and how our culture teaches us to react and think about suffering in our age, right? Because the message in, in our culture is basically do whatever you have to do to avoid suffering, right? Because after all, life is ultimately about self-indulgence and and really kind of just doing whatever feels good in the moment. And man, if you, if you happen to find yourself on the pathway of pain in life accidentally, man, you do whatever you gotta do to get out of that season of suffering, right? You, do, you claw your way out of that, you fight your way out of that. And yet, what we see Peter doing in this letter is offering a completely different viewpoint of suffering altogether. It's the same viewpoint, by the way, that Jesus not only taught, but modeled for us. It's kind of this upside down perspective that in God's kingdom, suffering can actually be a pathway to glory and a pathway to growth in our lives. See, suffering can actually uh, platform the gospel and, and make it beautiful to the world around us in a way that nothing else in our life can do, right? I, I'm watching some, some people in my life walk through this right now. 
that God has given them. They wouldn't have chosen this, a, a platform of, of suffering. And through this season of suffering, they're actually, they're platforming, they're exalting the beauty of who Jesus is, even those really painful walks and seasons of life. And it's actually really compelling to watch people walk through that. And so Peter is teaching us how to rightly view suffering that is inevitably going to come into our lives in this broken world in which we live our lives. This is, listen church, this is an important word for us, especially in these times, isn't it? I mean, I I can almost guarantee you, without even knowing exactly who's watching uh, this live stream right now, I can almost guarantee you that everyone under the sound of my voice right now is walking through some form of suffering right now. I mean, I could just almost guarantee you. And, and so understand, like, we, we need what Peter is, is giving us, what he's giving these believers 2,000 years ago, walking through incredible suffering and pain. We need this word desperately because, listen, when suffering enters your life, it will do one of two things. Suffering will always lead us either to a, a place of despair and hopelessness, right? And we're, we're just, man, we, we want, trying to get out of this bubble of pain and all these problems, and we just, we can't seem to, in our own strength, get out of all these things. And so we just kind of end up in a, a really hopeless, dark, deep place of despair. That's one thing that can happen when suffering enters our life. Or, or we can do what Peter is telling these believers we can do, which is, Embrace the suffering that God has allowed to come into our lives and watch God use it to take ashes and make beauty, to, to, to leverage the hard things in this world and in our life to make something beautiful and good in our lives and through our lives and in his kingdom. So it's a completely different view of what our culture offers up as to suffering. Peter paints a completely different, and I would argue a much more compelling picture of how we should engage with and view suffering that enters into our lives. So let's dig in. First Peter chapter four, starting in verse one. Again, this apostle uh, Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, he's writing it to all these Christians who are just walking through unimaginable suffering. This is what he writes to them. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking that, that Jesus had, that's what he's saying. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So Peter starts this section of his letter where he always seems to start and end, and that is with Jesus himself. Now what what we're going to see Peter do throughout the rest of this text is he's going to ask us to do uh, three things. But before he asks us to do anything, he's going to point us back to Jesus, right? Because Jesus is our inspiration. He He is our model, Jesus is our our power source, if you will, to do the really hard things in our Christian walk that God asks us to do. And so when Peter says, just as Christ suffered in the flesh, he's saying, hey, hey, listen, suffering Christian, I know it's hard. I know it's confusing. I know it may seem dark right now. I know it seems like there's this storm swirling around your life, but I want you to remember your king also suffered. He also walked through suffering and he never buckled And he never backed away. He ferociously pursued the will of his father, even in the middle of the pain, right in the middle of the fire. And so you need to believe it. You need to look to him in your pain. You need to look to him, first of all, in your suffering. You need to imitate him as he walked through 
his own uh, suffering. See, Jesus had his mindset on something far greater than his temporary suffering on this earth. Jesus had this mindset that allowed him to endure the greatest of suffering with the greatest of hope because he knew ultimately how the story ended, that the reward at the end of suffering would dwarf the momentary pain in his life. The story that just came, or the example that just came to my mind again and again as I was studying this passage was the, is the, is the process of giving birth. Um, now, obviously, I've never experienced that, but I have a wife who has a few times. And, um, you know, I, I, I honestly, you ladies are, are absolutely my heroes. I don't, I don't know how, how you do that. I was actually meeting with some of the, the guys in my community group earlier this week, and somehow we got on the topic of our wives giving birth. And, uh, and one of the guys was saying, yeah, my wife actually was in active labor for, for 26 hours. And I just shook my head, man. Like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how any human being can withstand that, that level of, of pain for, for 26 straight out. Like, I, I would be looking for a window to jump out of. I'd be begging the nurses just to put me in, like, a medically induced coma. Like, just, just end my pain. I, this is too much for me to handle. And yet, you ladies, just somehow you do it. Now, I, I don't know how you do it, but I would just imagine that, that in some way it's because you know that at the end of the suffering, something far greater and more beautiful and worthwhile than the pain that you're in right now is coming. That there's something really beautiful on the end of that time or that season of suffering. I think Peter, in essence, is saying here, and this is how Jesus suffered. This was his mindset as he walked through suffering himself, and we are to imitate him even in his suffering. So what was his mindset in suffering. I'll have this on the screen for you. This is in Hebrews chapter 12. This is what it says. It says, therefore, since we, that is those of us who love Jesus, those of us who follow Jesus, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the saints that have gone before us, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance. Now he's talking about the mindset that we need. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to who? Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. What was his mindset even in suffering? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus set his mind on the joy that was set before him. Now, man, how, how do we walk through suffering like Christ did? Just never, never losing hope, ferocious commitment to the end goal? Well, Peter tells us in verse, step one is to arm yourselves. Arm yourselves in your way of thinking, just like Jesus did. Now, this, this phrase in the original language, the Greek language, was a military term that was oftentimes used to describe how a soldier would prepare himself for battle. Now, I, I've always been fascinated with the ancient city-state of, of Sparta, all right? The Spartans, many of you have, have read about them. You've seen movies about these, these guys. Um, I always think of, of different movie images. I think we've got one on, on the screen right now. This, this is what I think of when I think of the Spartans. Now, I, I'm not sure if they actually, if they actually look like that. Maybe, maybe they did. But I, if you don't know a lot about Sparta, it, it was an incredible environment. The entire culture of Sparta revolved around preparation for war. 
I mean, I, I watched a couple of documentaries this week. It was, it was insane. So, so boys at the age of seven were taken away from their families, never to return again, and they became property of the state, and they began training for war at the age of seven. They weren't given their first pair of shoes until they were 18 because they wanted to, to just kind of toughen them up. They, would teach, they always kept them a little bit hungry. They gave them enough food, but they just kept them a little bit hungry so that if they're ever on the battlefield and they were hungry, that they would just know how to deal with that discomfort, with that suffering. If they ever got their feet cut up in battle, they could continue to marching on because they've, their entire life, they'd kind of lived with this level of suffering and discomfort. And so these guys were just incredible warriors. Their entire lives were spent just kind of becoming mentally and physically tough warriors, preparing themselves for the day of battle, and consequently, they became an absolutely feared force in the ancient world because they were always so well prepared in battle, in war. In fact, the ancient uh, historian uh, Plutarch said of the Spartans that war was seen as a holiday for them. They, they actually viewed wartime as a vacation, because battle was easier for them than their regular training routine, right? They were the only warriors in the world who were so well prepared for war that they actually looked forward to it, all right? Could you just imagine being like, man, I cannot, I cannot wait to our next war. I need some downtime, man. I need a little vacation. I hope we have a battle coming up. That, this is how well prepared they were for battle as a people. Their entire lives were devoted to winning war, engaging in battle. And I think in a sense, obviously in a less extreme way, this is, this is what Peter's saying to us, spiritually speaking. He's saying, spiritually, you, you need to learn how to arm yourselves. You need to learn how to, how to prepare yourselves for battle, for, for the times of suffering which are coming for you, so that when you walk through those times of, of pain and those valleys of suffering and those battles and those wars, when you enter in those seasons of life, they won't crush you because you're prepared for them. It's sort of like, the, I had this example come into my mind. It's just how weird my mind works, I guess. But imagine if, if somebody came to you, some government official, CIA agent, pulled you aside and said, hey, listen, in three months, you don't have a choice. You're gonna have to fight whoever, I don't know, Mike Tyson in his prime you know, three rounds with Mike Tyson or maybe Conor McGregor or whoever the baddest fighter in the world is now. You're gonna have to fight this guy in, in three months, three rounds, and if you survive that fight, like if he doesn't kill you, you're gonna get $100 million. But, but if, he does, if, he do, if he does beat you or defeat you, then you're gonna spend the next 20 years in prison or something like that, just some kind of crazy social experiment or something like that. Now, let me ask you something. If that, if that was reality for you, you knew in three months you were gonna go to war with one of the, the baddest, strongest, most vicious fighters out there, how would you spend the next three months? Would you spend the next three months sitting on your couch, watching Netflix, eating Doritos and ice cream cones? Not, not if you wanna live, not if you, unless you have a death wish. Like if I knew that day was coming and I had three months, man, I would, I would sell everything that I have. I would, I, would, I would hire the best trainer out there, the best physical trainers. I'd hire MMA and boxing coaches, man. I would be incredibly disciplined in what I put in my body and how I ate and trained physically every single day. Man, I would be preparing for that day of battle relentlessly. Like every moment of my day would be focused on getting better so that I could survive that one moment. And so what Peter is saying is that that's kind of what we need to be doing spiritually as believers. And so what Peter's gonna do is he's gonna give us three ways to walk in God's will even in a world of suffering. 
Three ways we can absolutely make sure that we're walking in God's will as believers, as disciples of Jesus, even in seasons of suffering. So number one, I think Peter is saying, Christian, listen, you need, you need to develop a warrior mentality. You need to develop a warrior mentality. Remember, he uses a military term to describe this. He's saying, listen, be, be willing. Be prepared to follow Jesus into battle. Everything that that entails and means for you. And understand this, listen, the Old Testament, New Testament, the scriptures are chock full of war imagery, battle imagery, fighting, boxing, all of that to describe our spiritual lives. And so Christian, develop a warrior mentality, meaning prepare yourself for the suffering of this world, just like Jesus did. Now, how, how, do, you, how do you do that practically? Like, Chris, that, what does that mean, man? Do I... I start doing sit-ups every day. I just try to look like one of these sparks. What does that mean practically? I think that's probably a, an entire sermon unto itself. But in short, what that looks like is spiritual disciplines. And again, that's, that's a whole other sermon. But in short, that looks like making sure that you're carving out time for spiritual disciplines that will benefit you in the long run. That means, that means you're, you're spending time, you're carving out time in your week to get in the word. You're not, you're not just waiting till Sunday for, for me to open up the word and, and kind of spoon feed you the word of God. You've trained yourself. You're in the process of training yourself how to open God's word and digest it and read it and apply it to your lives. It looks like carving out time for, for prayer. Just maybe early in the morning, maybe late at night when the kids are in bed. You're, you're, you're carving out, even if it's five or 10 minutes, just to get alone with God and, and pray and listen to him and hear his, his voice speak to you. It looks like being, being in community with other believers. Just like it would be foolish for a soldier to go fight an entire foreign army by himself, it'd be foolish for you to try to live the Christian life outside of community. You'd get, you're gonna get slaughtered. This is, it's the same imagery here. It looks like finding community, and that's, that's something, that's a smaller circle than just a, a big worship service like this, either online or outdoors at their outdoor, outdoor service. So if you don't have that smaller group of community, whether it's a Bible study or a, a small group or something like that, let me just encourage you, man, this is, this is part of what Peter is talking about here. And then I'd also say spiritual disciplines would, would include learning how to practice and use to activate your spiritual gifts, both inside the church body and outside the church body. Right? We're, not, we're not called just to, to study and get a big fat head where we learn all these things about God and his kingdom and then we never actually practice them. God has given you, believers, distinct, unique spiritual gifts. And he intends for you to use those spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ, to expand his kingdom outside of these four walls. And so, that, and again, entire sermon, in short, I would say spiritual disciplines is what this looks like. Reading the word, prayer, living in community, using your spiritual gifts inside, outside the church. And as you do this, notice what Peter says. He says, as you do this, realize that you have ceased from sin. What, what in the world does that mean, Peter? Realize that you have ceased from sin. I think what he's talking about here is that we have been united to Christ in his death. Go back, Romans chapter six. We don't have time to dig into it, but really Paul unpacks that very, very clearly in detail. Now, what, here, here's what Peter's not saying here. He's not, Peter's not saying that those of us who follow Jesus never sin again, right? He, he clearly isn't saying that. Uh, the apostle Paul talked just very openly about his struggle with sin even after his conversion, Romans chapter seven. But what he is saying is that when we follow Jesus 
And he, he puts his, his spirit, the Holy Spirit, inside of us that for the very first time in our lives, we are no longer slaves to sin. For the very first time in our whole lives, in that moment, we cross that threshold of faith, we give our life to Jesus, he, he puts his spirit inside of us, we are no longer slaves to the power and principalities of sin in this world. It means sin no longer controls you and no longer is a master over you like it once was. It means that we now have the ability to say no to sin. Now, how do we do that? Look at verse two. Peter says, so as to live for the rest of time, so, so, so the rest of our lives, basically, on this planet, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but instead for the will of God. Now, this verse is probably the thesis statement of the entire passage, that our purpose as believers is to live for the will of God and the kingdom of Jesus. So Peter goes, look, there, there, really, there, there are kind of two ways to live your life. And you just kind of boil it down, distill everything down to its core essence. There are two ways that you can live your life. You can either live your life for the passions of men or you can live your life for the will of God. All right, you either live for you or you live for something far greater than yourself. You either build a monument with your life that says, hey, look at me, my life is all about me, or you live in such a way that your life actually becomes a monument that says, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Find life in him. Find your purpose in his kingdom. And so Peter says, hey, listen, you wanna find the will of God, you wanna walk in God's will. Step number one, you've gotta develop a warrior mentality. You've gotta learn how to arm yourself and prepare yourself for battle. But then secondly, I think he's saying, listen, you've gotta learn how to fight sin, believer. You have, to, you have to learn how to wage war against your own sin if you wanna live in the will of God, Christian. And what he's saying is, hey, hey believer, stop, stop settling for all the trinkets of this world when you've been offered the, the glory and the beauty of the kingdom of God. Like, why, why would you ever choose a, a shack over a mansion, right? If somebody came to you and said, hey, listen, two choices. You can either live in this tent city in this busted up, nasty little shack, or you can have, like, this incredible, massive mansion on the ocean with a, with a, with a pool and the whole nine yards. Which one would you, why, you, nobody would ever choose the shack over the mansion. Why would you choose a, a bowl of dirt over an exquisite five-course meal at the world's greatest restaurant? Like, you wouldn't. Nobody would do that. So, so why do you do that in your spiritual life? Why, why would you choose something that's less satisfying? Why would you choose something that has less joy than what God's offering you in his kingdom? This reminded me of one of the legendary quotes from uh, C.S. Lewis. And I'll put this on the screens for you. Some of you probably already heard it, but it, it's good. It's good. It's, he, Lewis says this. He says, we are, we are half-hearted creatures. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And Peter is saying, beloved, you have to learn how to fight sin in your life because not, not only is suffering well, and evidence of your new identity in Jesus, actually your distaste for your own sin is an evidence of your new, your new life in Christ. I heard a, a pastor 
recently put it well. He said this, faith doesn't make you sinless, it makes you fight. I love that. Faith doesn't make you sinless, it makes you fight. That's one of the things, when I, be, when I began to follow Jesus in college for the very first time, that changed for me overnight. Instantaneously, this changed. I no longer loved my sin. Now, I might do something that was sinful, and it would be enjoyable or pleasurable in the moment, but it would begin to, to eat at me afterwards. It would begin to, to gnaw away at my, my soul, and I began to, began to have a distaste for my own sin. For the very first time in my life, I began to, began to hate it. It became something that was putrid to me. I wanted to fight against it. I wanted to slay it in my life for the very first time. So Peter's saying, listen, you gotta develop a warrior mentality, first of all. You gotta learn how to prepare yourself for battle. You gotta be willing to suffer as you follow Jesus into battle. But then number two, you gotta fight sin. You can't, listen, if you love Jesus, if you follow him, you can't, you can't embrace your own sin. You, you've gotta learn to wage war against your own sin. Now what kind of sin are you, are you talking about, Peter? Look, look at verse three. Peter says this, for the time that is past. So basically, your past. He's referencing our past. The time that has passed suffices. It's enough already for doing what the, the Gentiles, the non-Christians want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. You pretty much covered all the bases of sin right there, I think. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So Peter lists all of these different sins, which, by the way, people's hearts haven't changed a whole lot in the last 2,000 years, have they? <laughs> the same sins that entice us in our day, same sins that entice people in Peter's day. I think sometimes we, we tend to think that we have it so much harder the past generations of other Christians, and maybe in some ways that's true, but the human heart at its core has not changed. Our sin nature remains the same. So the same things we battle in our day and age, same things followers of Jesus had to contend with back 2,000 years ago through time and history. And notice, Peter specifically points them to their past. He doesn't gloss it over. He doesn't pr pretend like it doesn't exist. He points them to their past, you gotta remember Christianity was a new movement at this time. Most of these people he's writing to would have come to faith as adults, so they had a past. And he's saying, listen, 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 Christian, your past was full of this stuff. That list that I just read you, passions and sensuality and drunkenness and idolatry, all, your life was full of this stuff. Don't you remember that? Don't you remember how empty that life was? Guys, don't you remember how, how broken you felt inside when you were, why, why would you ever go back? Like this is, this is your past, leave it in the past. Christian, you have a new identity now, you got a new mission, that's the old you. Remember, you, you died with Jesus, so leave that person in the grave where they belong. That's not you anymore. That's not your new identity. It reminds me of, uh, I'm kinda gross, if you're eating breakfast right now, I apologize, but Proverbs 26, 11. It says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. That's nasty, isn't it? Have you ever seen a dog do that? I've seen my dog try to do that a couple of times and I freak out every time. I'm like, ah, get away from get away from that. That is so, that is so, it's so nasty. I thought about actually making this our next, our next point. Don't be a vomit eater. But I figured some of y'all would get mad and email me. So I'm not gonna make that my next point. But Peter's point is the same. This is your past. Right, your past, all this stuff, this whole list of, of nasty, it's, it's nasty, it's harmful for you, it's, it's gross, it's gonna make you sick. Don't go back to that life. But he's saying, be prepared. 
that when you switch teams in this life, from team world to team Jesus, don't be surprised when they malign you because you won't participate with them anymore. That was one of my very first experiences as a follower of Jesus. Literally, in the course of about a week, lost my entire social circle. All, right, all my friends, all my buddies, my girlfriend, my social connection, all of it, boom, gone, just like that. I, I, was, I was dead to them. And Peter's saying, listen, that's gonna happen. That's gonna happen. When you, when you go from death to life, people aren't gonna understand. People are gonna have questions. They're gonna make fun of you. Oh, you're a holy roller, Christian man. You, what? They're gonna have questions for you. They're gonna mock you. They're gonna, they're gonna isolate you. They're gonna marginalize you. You're gonna suffer. And Peter's saying, don't be surprised by their reaction. <laughs> Remember Jesus. He suffered. He was mocked. People made fun of him. He was maligned. Eventually, he was brutally executed by the Roman government, and you belong to him. You're his disciple, not a disciple of the world. So be prepared that they're gonna, they're gonna hate you like they hated him. They're gonna persecute you like they persecute. Actually, that was, that was a quote from Jesus. If they hate me, they're gonna hate you. If they persecute me, they're gonna persecute you. So Peter's saying, listen, Christian, prepare yourself for battle. Nobody said it's gonna be easy. Nobody said it's gonna be easy. Jesus just promised that it was gonna be worth it in the end. Have you ever thought about why it is that people tend to reject and ostracize you when you choose to live an authentically countercultural lifestyle? So when you make the decision, like I did in college, that I'm just, man, I'm not gonna go out and get hammered every weekend. When you make the decision, you know what, I'm not gonna sleep with my boyfriend or my girlfriend before marriage. When you make the decision, you know what, I'm not gonna lie and cheat my way through school. Or, or to climb the, the corporate ladder. Why is it that people care that you opt out of their way of life? Have you ever thought about that, how strange that is? Like, like what, business, what business is it of theirs if you want to live your life in a countercultural way? Now here, I'm telling you, that here, here's why it matters to them, and Jesus talks a lot about this concept of light and darkness in the New Testament. What does light do? Have you ever, have you ever been in a, a dark room and someone unexpectedly flips the lights on or, or opens the blinds really quickly. My kids do that sometimes at night. I get really mad at them. Kind of cover my eyes and start yelling at them. Turn it, turn it off, turn it off. Why, why is that our reaction? Why do we shrink away from the light when it's dark? Because it's painful. Light exposes what's in the dark. And if your eyes aren't used to, if your eyes aren't adjusted to the light, it hurts. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Later on in the Gospels, he tells his disciples, you are now the lights of the world. And Peter's saying, don't be surprised when those who are in darkness find your light offensive because it, it hurts. It's exposing something within them. Don't be surprised when they persecute you and they malign you and they hate you. They hated me first. Don't be surprised by that. Prepare for that and love them anyway. And then in verse five, he says this, but they, those who persecute us, because we choose to walk in a different kingdom, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. I think Peter is simply saying here, listen, you don't have to worry about justice for those who oppress you. I'm convinced so many of us just live in a prison of things that have happened to us in the past, of people who have mistreated us, wounded us, abused us, talked about us behind our backs, stabbed us in the back, 
We just kind of live in this perpetual mental prison from these past wounds and we kind of, we play them over and over again in our minds and we kind of picture what we would say if we could go back and we'd really get them and all these kinds of, and Peter's saying, no, 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 don't, don't be a slave to that. Don't be a slave to, to that, man. God, God's got this under control, man. You don't have to worry about their justice. You don't have to worry about revenge for those who, who mistreat you. Don't lose sleep. Don't lose any sleep when you get excluded or mocked or slain. God's got it. So you gotta understand, yes, God is a God of great love and, and great mercy and great grace, and yes, he is all of those things, but understand this as well, Christian, God is also the just judge. He is the just judge. And so you can rest because your oppressors will give an account one day, not only for their rejection of God, but how they treated the people of God. And so Peter is saying, listen, rest easy, Christian. You can, you can lay your head on the pillow at night and you can sleep like a baby. Don't worry about it. God's got this all under control. So you, you just focus on looking at me, keeping your eyes on me, following me, following the way of Jesus, living in his kingdom, loving others, learning how to endure suffering and not retaliating, but offering love and forgiveness instead. Don't worry about justice. I've got, I've got justice covered. You live your life. You love others well. And then he finishes with verse six. And he says this, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are, your translation may say now dead. I think that's the better translation. The CSB says that. The gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. That though judged in the flesh, meaning they, they died, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And Pete, listen, Peter isn't saying here that that the gospel is preached to those who are already dead. Somehow they get a, a second chance to, to repent and follow Jesus after death. The Bible is clear that all, that, all that's gotta happen while we're alive. He's simply saying here that some, some Christians among you, church, he's writing to these churches, some believers among you have, have already died. And maybe even they were martyred. They, they, they were killed, they were murdered for their faith in Jesus. But listen, he's saying, listen, even when they died physically, because they heard and they believed the gospel, they are now alive in spirit with God himself. Now I imagine in this day, because there was so much persecution against the church, there probably were critics of the Christian faith that would say something like this. Man, you Christians, you, you live this radical lifestyle. You give everything away, you love people, you forgive people, you don't seek revenge or justice, you care for the, the poor, the orphan, the widow, you live this crazy, selfless lifestyle, and then your reward for that kind of crazy lifestyle is you die, just like everybody else. So what benefit is it to, for anybody to choose to live like you do and follow your God? Just eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die was their attitude, and Peter's response here is brilliant. He goes, no, 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 you don't understand. You don't understand, De death is not the final word for the follower of Jesus. Death is never the final word for the follower of Jesus, and here's why, Jesus has conquered death on our behalf. And so even when we die, we actually live. See, we, we have a hope that extends beyond this life. We have a hope that doesn't end on the day that we take our last breath. On that day, our life is actually just beginning. It reminds me of the quote from uh, Billy Graham before his death. He, he wrote this. He said, someday, 
you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will, I will have gone into the presence of God. Peter's saying the same thing. He's encouraging these believers, walking through suffering. He's saying, listen, even death can't separate you from your king. Even death, even suffering can't separate you from your king. Do you wanna know who the most dangerous person on the planet is? Most dangerous person on the planet is a person who doesn't even fear death. Because you, you now have nothing you can hold over their heads. You've got no control over that person who doesn't even fear death. When somebody's highest treasure in this life and the one to come is Jesus, and not even death can take that away from them, now you are true to, you are, you are free to actually truly begin to live a life in freedom for the very first time in your life. That's why Peter opens this chapter with a command to live for the will of God. Live for the will of God. He's encouraging these Christians. Jesus is your highest treasure, and nothing in this life can take that away. Now, side note, just as we begin to land the plane, uh, there's a common misconception, I think, in our culture that if we follow the will of God, if we give our lives to Jesus, we become followers of Jesus, trust in Jesus, that we're, we're gonna be missing out on something. The common misconception, I think especially among younger people, teenagers, 20s, I believe this lie for, for many, many years. I just wanna say, if, if you're out there and you've kind of bought that, you know, hook, line, and sinker, like, man, if I follow God, I'm just gonna be missing out on some good stuff. So I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna kind of wait, wait till I hit 30 or 40 or 50 and I'm gonna have my fun, so my, so my wild oats and then I'm gonna settle down. I'm, I'm just, if, that, if that's where you're at, and I was there, again, for many years, I want you to understand that if that's how you think about God, you misunderstand the very essence of God. And if that's how you view God, in, in a sense, I know you don't probably think of it this way, but in a sense, you are accusing God of not being good. Because you're, you're, you're essentially saying to God, you're withholding something good. So at your core, at your essence, you're not actually a good father. Because I know if I follow you, you're gonna take something really good away from me. And, and that's actually the opposite of what God wants. Like if you read the scriptures, God always wants more joy for his people. More joy, more happiness, more peace, not less. More satisfaction for his children. He just knows that we can never find any of those things by chasing the false idols of this world and sinful patterns in this life. Instead, God calls us into a life of more joy, not less. More peace, more abundance, more satisfaction. And that life can only be found in the kingdom of Jesus. I can tell you that that's true from my own personal experience. I came across this really funny meme or, or picture on social media this week. I'll put it up on the screen for you right now. This is this little kid back in the 1940s or something. He's, he's, got, he's got a knife sticking it into an electrical socket He's saying, nobody's gonna tell me what to do. I got rights. And I, I kind of feel, I saw that and I felt like it's kind of like, man, God probably looks down on us and that's what we look like to him half the time. It's like, man, he's got all these incredible gifts for us in his kingdom. We're over there fooling around with a stupid light socket that's gonna shock us. We're like, man, I, I know, God, you can't tell me what to do. And he's like, man, I got, so, I got something that is so much better for you. And as we finish out this, this part of, the letter from Peter, I also see a sense of urgency in the words of Peter. 
You'll notice the last two verses, he makes mention of judgment for those who would reject Christ. And he also mentions eternal life for those who are in Christ. So here's one of my, my takeaways from that. There, there really should be a sense of urgency in the way that we live our lives, Christians. There ought to be a sense of urgency in how we live. Why? Because everyone you meet ultimately is immortal. Every single person you meet, your family members who are far from God, your classmates, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, your family members, everyone ultimately, if you believe that this word is true, that the Bible is true, everyone is immortal in the ultimate sense. Every single person that you cross paths with is gonna spend their lives alive, fully conscious, forever, either with God in glory or separated from their creator forever in a place that the Bible calls hell. And I just wanna say to you, believer, this should drive the way that we live our lives. This should drive us to a, to a place of radical love for people, for other people. It should motivate us to, to walk in light and share the light that God has given us with other people. Believer, Christian, follower of Jesus, understand you have the greatest hope the world has ever seen inside of you. You have the best news that's ever been proclaimed on the face of this planet. That's why our, our mission statement here at New Life is we exist to help people find and follow Jesus. Christian, we have a mission and it is an urgent mission. And so truth number three, I think that, that Peter gives us here, the third way that we can make sure that we're walking in the will of God, even in times of suffering, number three is Christian, we have to embrace our mission. We have to embrace our mission with a sense of urgency. Because I'm convinced so many of us, we love God, man, we come to church, we read our Bible, we, we give sacrificial, we do all these things, and that's great, we, we ought to do all of those things, but we live with no sense of urgency at all. There's so many of us who would claim the name of Jesus, we would claim to be Christians, but practically, we live like universalists. That in the end, we just kind of, in the end, it's all gonna work out and God will sort of eventually somehow get everybody to heaven. They're just different pathways. Peter's saying, no, 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 no. There's a sense of urgency here. There will come a day of judgment. And so we are called to live on mission with, listen, friend, there is too much at stake for us to coast in our spiritual lives. God has given us a mission, something bigger than ourselves to play a part in. Let's join God in his mission. I wanna finish with this, Matthew five, this is what Jesus says to his disciples. And I think he says to you and I today, he says this, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand way up high, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So I wanna finish with just two questions. First, to the Christians. Those of you who would claim the name of Jesus, you'd say you've given your life to him, you love him, you follow him. Let me just ask you a question. Based on what we just read, 1 Peter chapter four, how are you doing in walking in God's will for your life? How are you doing in walking in God's will, the pathway of his will? What, what is he asking you to do? What's your, what's, your, what's your next step based on what we've just heard from this word in 1 Peter? 
Because the reality is I don't think God ever gives us revelation without a path to action. God never gives us revelation without a pathway to action. And so if you love Jesus, you're part of his kingdom, my question for you is simple. What's your next step? What's your action step? Not five years from now, not next week, not when coronavirus goes away. What's your next step right now? Maybe for some of you it's developing that warrior mentality so that you can walk into the battles of life and thrive instead of shrivel up and die. So maybe for you that looks like getting back in the word consistently. Maybe you've kind of just drifted away from that. Maybe it looks like carving out time to really get alone with God, to spend time in prayer. Maybe God has brought a particular person to your mind that you know you need to be a light to. Maybe there's somebody that you need to get on the phone with this afternoon. Maybe there's somebody that you need to email, invite for coffee this week. There's somebody in your life that needs the hope that you have. And it's time for you to put that light, that lamp on the stand so that the world around you can see the beauty of Jesus. I don't know what your next step is, but I know that God is gonna give you one. So I just ask you to be faithful. I ask you to be obedient to whatever the Holy Spirit is asking you to do in this very moment. And the second thing is, and we'll close with this, if you happen to be tuning in and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you're just watching maybe because a spouse comes to church here, maybe you just kind of stumbled across us on YouTube or Facebook or whatever it is, and you've heard this message that there's a God in heaven that loves you. He's got a purpose for your life. And it's not always gonna be easy, but it's always gonna be worth it. Let me just ask you, if you've heard that message, is God prompting you to take a step today? Let me just ask you, what, what are you waiting on? What, what could possibly hold you back from the very best thing that could ever happen to you, which is to know your creator and walk with him? It's been said that the two most important days in a man's life are the day he's, the day he's born and the day that he figures out what he's born for. And I'm just telling you, if you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, this is what you were born for. You were born for a relationship with your creator, a purpose beyond the nine to five rat race or trying to get on a roll in school or whatever it is. You were born for more. So I'm just telling you, whatever you're chasing in life right now, ultimately you're only gonna find it in Jesus. And so maybe today is the day for you, just like it was for me in my early 20s. Maybe today is the day that you say, enough. I'm tired of living life for myself. I'm, I'm tired of trying to captain my own life and figure everything out. I just keep messing things up. I keep hurting people in my life. I realize I can't do this on my own anymore. I need Jesus desperately. And if that's you, as we just kind of bow our heads, even at home as you watch this, let's bow our heads and spend some time praying. If that's you and you'd say, yeah, Chris, I, I need this relationship with my creator like you're talking about. I need to know Jesus. If that's you, just pray some prayer like this. God, I, I confess my need for you now. Father, I, I recognize I'm, I'm a sinner and I've messed things up and I've tried to do this on my own. But God, I see the beauty that is Jesus now, and I wanna turn away from my life and my sin to you and your way, and so I'm trusting Jesus right now with my past, my present, and my future, now and forever. As the band comes, also I would say, Father, we ask now that you would empower us for the task at hand, God, 
we would have to confess, God, I would personally have to confess that, that I am too weak in my own flesh to live this kind of radical life of self-sacrifice and love and preparing myself to go into the battles of life and succeed. God, I, I'm too weak oftentimes, I'm too selfish, I'm, I'm too focused on myself and my needs and my wants and my desires instead of your kingdom and what you're calling me into. So God, would you remind me that your way is always better than my way. It's always more satisfying. There's always more joy there. There's always more satisfaction there. There's always more peace there. There's always more pleasure there. God, we are grateful for Jesus who has walked this path for us and with us. Jesus, would you help us to walk this path with you, God? Would you make us more like your son, Jesus, for our good? and for your glory. And we ask all of this in the beautiful and strong name of Jesus. Amen.